If you're able, would you remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 10 through 13 of Ephesians 6. That last song in verse 2 included the word panoply. Uh, That's the uh, transliteration into English of a Greek word that just means the whole armor. That's what the word panoply means in case you're wondering. Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10, this is the word of our Lord. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit will be working mightily through the proclamation of your word, that your people might be brought before your presence and to grow in Christ, even as we believe in what is preached. We pray that you would work mightily in us to grow in you, Enable us to fight the fight that you call us to fight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The main idea that Paul has been developing in the book of Ephesians is the idea of the church. This is it, the church. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul speaks of the origin of the church in the mind of God in eternity past. And then he speaks about the historical application of that in the salvation of God's people. And in chapter 4, Paul starts to teach how the plans of God and the salvation in Jesus Christ look like as we live in the community of the church of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 begins by telling us to work, walk worthy of the call that we have in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, through Paul exhorts us to walk worthy of the call with which we were called in Jesus Christ. In other words, we are to live life here that is equivalent to the life that we have in heaven. In chapter 2, Paul already told us that we are sitting in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. Now we are to walk as such as we live in this world. And from that point on, from chapter 4, 1 on, Paul is applying the rich theology of God's sovereign grace through Jesus Christ to the life of the church. And now he brings uh, all that he has said together, and the letter culminates with the command to be strong in the Lord. If you look at verse 10, you find the word finally there, which just means uh, to what remains, which means... I'm bringing everything together. Some scholars think that the whole of the, of the book of Ephesians is written to arrive at verse 10, where we are told that we are to fight a war by being strong in the Lord. That everything that Paul has said so far is to equip us to, for this war that we fight in the life as, uh, as a, of a Christian. So everything that Paul has said so far is designed to strengthen the church in the Lord and prepare her 
for war. And the life of the Christian is a life of spiritual war in the name of Jesus Christ. And if you are not aware of that, you're already losing the battle. In order to do that, in order to be able to fight that war, the Christian must be strong in the Lord. So I want us to start today by asking how... How do I become strong in the Lord? How do we, as the church of Jesus Christ, become strong in the Lord? And I think Paul gives us two, two answers to this question. The first one is that we become strong in the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Look at verse 10. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. This phrase, the power of His might, just means this mighty power. So we become strong as the Spirit works in us. And the Spirit already dwells in us. It's not something that we're looking forward to. It's already a reality. We have the Spirit of God in each one of us as we believe in Jesus Christ. This expression, uh, the power of His might or His mighty power, has already been appeared in the epistle at least twice. In chapter 1, uh, it's interesting that both uh, appear in prayers of Paul for the Ephesians. In chapter 1, as Paul prays for the Ephesians, he says... In verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the power working uh, in, in us, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the, high, the right hand in heavenly places. This power that is at work in us, what God has given to you is the same power that, that raised Jesus from the dead. If that power can bring people back to life, it can equip you to fight the war that God has placed before you. Now, Paul had prayed for them uh, that the Ephesians and, uh, would be strong in the Lord. And through them, he prayed for us that we would be strengthened by the Spirit in their inner man. In chapter 3, verse 16, Paul prays that the Father would grant us, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. So how do we become strong in the Lord? Through the Spirit that already dwells in us and is working in us to become more like Jesus Christ. This, this power enables us to resist the forces at work, at war, in the world that are hostile to our well-being and opposed to the gospel. So that's the first way, the first answer to this question. How do we become strong in the Lord? Through the, the power of the Spirit that dwells in you. Secondly, we become strong in the Lord by putting on the whole armor of God. Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles means stratagems or stratagem or strategies that the devil might use. The whole armor of God is described a little later and Lord willing, we're going to look at it at that in two weeks. But if you look at verses 14 through 17, we have that panoply of the whole armor of God described when Paul says in verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth having put on the best place of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. 
We're going to look at this passage in two weeks. But for now, it's important for us to realize that God calls us to war and he equips us with all the defensive and offensive weapons we need. God has given us the spirit and now he calls us to fight this war. We're going to describe the war in just a moment. And he doesn't say go and fight it and figure out how we're going to do it. No, he gives us the weapons that we need to defend ourselves and the weapons that we need to also attack uh, the enemy. He doesn't leave us to ourselves. He provides all that we need in order to fight this war. So how do we become strong in the Lord? Through the power of the Spirit that's already in us, but also by putting on the whole armor of God that He provides for us to fight this war. The second question I want us to answer this morning is this. Not just the how, but the why. Why do we need to become strong in the Lord? Well, the first answer is so that we stand. Do you notice that Paul repeats that quite often here in our passage? Four times he tells us to stand. In verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. In verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. In verse, 11 again, in verse 13 again, in having done all to stand. And then in verse 14, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. To stand is a military world, word. And in the military context, to stand is not to give ground. It is to be able to stand firm and not be moved back. Christ conquered all, and the church and the individual Christians will not let the enemies of Christ take not, not, take not even an inch back of what Christ has conquered. And we do that by the power of the Spirit and with the armor that God has given us. And we need to become strong in the Lord because we are at war with a very powerful enemy. We are at war with the devil and all his army. Look at verses 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our war is against a whole host of spiritual enemies. Don't be deceived. We are at war. And we are constantly at war. And it's a spiritual war. Now, to be sure... We have struggles that have to do with flesh and blood. Our, our bodies are decaying. It's, it's, every day is a little hard to get out of bed. The, the, every day takes a little longer for the joints to bend. Uh, and they don't bend as much anymore. Right? You just hope that nothing falls down and you don't have to bend down to pick it up because it just don't work. We, we have conflicts with flesh and blood people. We persecute and are persecuted by real flesh and blood people. But ultimately, our struggle transcends the realm of flesh and blood. The battle of life in this world is ultimately a spiritual battle. And as such, it demands spiritual weapons. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, who is a New Testament scholar, who was a New Testament scholar, he's gone to be with the Lord, in commenting on this passage, said this. He said, The Christian conflict is not only real, it is difficult and dangerous. It is one in which true believers are often grievously wounded. So, Satan wounds even those who belong to Christ. 
And, and Bruce continues, and multitudes of reputed believers, that is, uh, professing believers, entirely succumb. It is one also in which great mistakes are often committed and serious loss incurred from ignorance of its nature and the appropriate means for carrying it on. So Bruce warns us that if we don't know that we are at war, and if we don't know how to carry it, we are in serious trouble because the enemy is real and he is powerful. Paul describes Satan and his minions as principalities, that is, rulers, as powers, a better, better translation would be the word authorities. That's the same word in the Great Commission where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Rulers of the darkness of this age, that is, rulers of this world. That's the, that's the descriptions of our enemies. Principalities, powers, and rules, rulers of the darkness of this age. And these three categories of enemies are further described as spiritual and wicked. They are not here to just give us a great time. They're not here just to challenge us. They are wicked. And their desire is to destroy. That's, that's their only goal, is to destroy you, to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that they are located in heavenly places, that is, in the spiritual world. It's interesting that the word heaven in the New Testament is not really used to... Um, to, to represent the place we call heaven today. Now we think of heaven as the place where once we die, the soul goes to be with God in Christ and there's freedom of sin and so on. In the Bible, the heavens is just a place of the, where the spiritual uh, beings dwell, both good and bad. You can listen to our Sunday school lesson a few weeks ago. I addressed that then. And also, they refer, so they refer to the place where non-material beings dwell, so they are in the heavenly places fighting this war. And then Paul says that Satan is their chief, their master, their boss. And Satan is the ultimate ruler of this world. And I mean world not as in creation, but as in the system of this world. Our Lord in John, several times in the Gospel of John, refers to Satan as such. In John, for example, in John 12, 31, our Lord says, Now is the judgment of this world now the ruler of this world will be cast out. In John 14, 30, our Savior says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. And Paul himself uses a similar language, similar language in chapter 2, verse 7, to refer to Satan when he says in Ephesians 2, 7, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That's Satan. Satan is fighting against you. Satan and his servants are real. They are real spiritual forces that must be resisted. We forget that. Their goal is to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. That's their, they're single-minded, and they're focused, and that's what they're going to try to do, to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And praise be to God that our Savior won't let that happen. For he said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the gates of the spiritual world will not prevail against it. Now, where did Satan and his servants come from? Satan was created by God as a beautiful and powerful angel who rebelled against God and led a multitude of other angels astray with him. I'd love for you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. 
Zeke is one of those books that are a little difficult to find, but just about over halfway of your Bible. If you kind of open there, there's a great chance that you're going to be in Ezekiel. But it's like tying a church, uh, 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 finding Ezekiel is like tying a tie. If you don't get it right the first time, it takes forever to do it. <laughs> so if you don't get it right to Ezekiel the first time, it takes forever to find it. But Ezekiel 28 speaks of Satan. Uh, Ezekiel is instructed to write a proclamation, a, a curse to send to the king of Tyre. And the king of Tyre was so bad at the time that he is representative of Satan. And it will become clear as we read this that God is no longer speaking of the king of Tyre, but he's speaking of Satan himself. Some people like going to Isaiah 14 to talk about Satan. That's where he used the word Lucifer. I do not believe Isaiah 14 is about the, Satan, is about the king of the Babylons and the Medes. But we can discuss that later. But Ezekiel 28, there's no doubt this is talking about Satan. If you look at starting in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So right there we see that he's not talking about the king of Tyre anymore, right? Right off the bat, we can see this is somebody else, uh, not the king of Tyre. Somebody who was beautiful, who was perfect. Verse 13 you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Now, the cherub was that class of angels that uh, stood before the throne of God and cried out, Holy, Holy Holy, and uh, if you look at Isaiah 6 and Revelation, it talks about their covering, using their wings to cover certain parts of their body. And in the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place, two cherubim would guard the Ark, and their wings would cover the Ark. That's the kind of being Satan was created as. Containing verse 14, I established you, you you were on the holy mountain of God, you walked back and forth in the midst of fire stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fire stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Did you see the picture here? Satan was created this, this glorious, powerful, beautiful, perfect creature who sinned. And because of that was cast out of God's presence. And with him. He took a multitude of angels. Revelation 12 speaks of, verse 4, talks about the tail of the dragon wiping off a third of the stars of heaven. The word stars there is heavenly hosts, which, have to do, which has to do with the idea of angels. And then in verse 9 of Revelation 12, it says this, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And you can see here the strength of 
Satan's army. Before he retired for a while, uh, uh, Elder Hollander was in charge of military strength in deployments. So he had to make sure that each base all over the world had, or for, for a certain segment of the army, had enough people there. That if a cook left over here, another cook came in, not a seal or something like that. You know, that wouldn't be sealed because they are Navy. I apologize for that <laughs> infraction. But you got the idea. And he was in charge to make sure that all the bases, all the deployments are at perfect or uh, near perfect strength. So you see the strength of the army, the number of the army of Satan, and he deploys them well. It talks about the third of the angels in heaven. There, there's a chance we can mathematically calculate that. I don't know if the Lord Jesus meant, the Lord Jesus meant that way, but when he's talking to, uh, to his, uh, in his trials uh, close to his crucifixions, he says that his Father in heaven has 10,000 10, times 10,000 legions of angels in heaven. So you could, if you want to come up with a mathematical number, if that's what our Lord meant of the angels in heaven, and it, it, which means that Satan's army would be a third of that, which is a great powerful number. But even in that case, God's army would be so much more powerful and so much greater in strength than that. But as a result of his rebellion, Satan and his angels were cast out of the presence of God and condemned to judgment. And they regretted that forever. And that's a picture of the, of the people in hell. Nobody in hell will want to go to heaven. Don't picture hell as a bunch of people saying, Oh, I wish I had believed. Oh, I wish I was going. No, people in hell are in enmity against God. They, they don't want to come to God. The book of Revelation says that even at the coming of Jesus Christ, people are going to say, I just want the rocks to fall upon me rather than repenting and believing in Him. I prefer that I be crushed to death than believing in Jesus Christ. And that's the attitude of the people in, heaven, in hell. And that's the attitude of Satan and his minions. And he, they want to destroy Christ and his church. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter says concerning Satan in Peter 2, 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Chains of darkness means chains, which is darkness. That is, they are trapped in darkness. They are not going to leave darkness. It's not like there's a chance for them to be redeemed. It's not not like us who will be redeemed. They are chained to darkness. Darkness is their domain, and they're they're going to try to bring darkness to the church. That's their goal. Jude agrees with that when in Jude chapter 6 it says, The angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And it seems like the cause of Satan's fall was his own pride. Pride is the primordial sin. Pride is the sin from which every other sin comes from. When Paul is discussing the qualifications for a candidate to the office of the elder, he says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, that he should not be a novice. That is, there should not be something new in the face. Faith, not in the face, but in faith. Lest, being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. So it's his own pride that caused him to depart from God. And now that prideful creature is about, is, it, his business is to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Ironically, Satan and his angels make their mission to fight against the church of Christ, and yet they are ultimately instruments of God. 
They do nothing apart from the sovereign control and sovereign dominion of God himself. Where would you go in the Bible to show that? What would be the classic, classic book? Well, it would be the book of Job, right? Where God has to give Satan permission before he can do anything to Job. But it goes beyond just God allowing. In, in 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul discusses the, flesh on the, on, uh, the, the thorn in the flesh, Paul says that Satan was an agent of God in Paul's sanctification. That God, that even though Satan thought he was destroying Paul, Paul, God was using Satan to make Paul more like Christ through this particular thorn on his flesh and to keep Paul from the very sin that caused Satan to fall, that is, pride. Praise be to God that even our worst enemy cannot move one millimeter apart from God's sovereign control over him. And I want you to notice in verse 12 how many times Paul repeats the word against. He says uh, in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh. And he could have just done that and stopped there. Uh, and not repeat the word against again. But he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the ruler of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wicked in the heavenly places, of wickedness. And when you start studying the original language, you realize that it was very difficult to actually write. And I mean that. It was mechanically difficult to write. And when you have a New Testament writer repeating words that are grammatically unnecessary, they must have a purpose. And Paul, he is emphasizing that this is a serious situation. Our, we are fighting against all these things that he's placed before me, uh, before us. Our enemy is very, very, very powerful, and this is a very serious war that we are, are involved in. Having said that, though, we also must understand that they are not God and do not possess the attributes of God. Satan is not God. They're, they're not all-powerful. Only God is. They're not everywhere. Only God is. They're not all-knowing. Only God is. Satan does not know your heart. You know that? Only God does. He, he takes your word at face value. If you say you're a Christian, he's going to attack you as a Christian, but he doesn't know your heart. Only God knows that. And though powerful, our enemies have been assured of defeat. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, the same words in Ephesians 6, 10 and 11, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. This is the picture of a, of a general that has just won a battle, and he marches into Rome with all his enemies tied behind his chariot, and everybody is saying, Look, those are the defeated anim- enemies of the general. And our, our Lord has done that for us. They are, they have, he has assured defeat to our enemies. And that's why we can resist him. That's why we can resist his angels through our union with the conquering Christ. Because Christ has conquered, we too can conquer. Because Christ has conquered, we too can win this battle. And that's why Paul says, resist the devil and he will do what? Who flee from you. It's not just that he's going to just not attack you. He'll just run away from you in defeat. 
He is the prince of darkness. No question about it. But we are not in darkness anymore. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that God the Father has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated, moved us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son whom He loves. Again, F.F. Bruce says, They will do their best to reclaim the people of Christ for their own dominion, but their attempts will be fruitless if the people of Christ resist them with the spiritual resources which are now placed at their disposal. Christ has conquered, and we are not just conquered, we are what? We're more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. Now, in battle, in war, it's always good to know your enemy. So let me spend the rest of our time together saying a few words about the devil himself. And I'm going to use as a help to that the words of a Puritan pastor by the name of William Gurnall. He wrote the little book on this passage. Uh, is a series of sermons on, on, on Ephesians 6, 10 through uh, the end of the passage. And it's only 1,500 pages long, the book. And we know uh, the book by the title of The Christian in Complete Armor, A Treatise of the Saints' War Against the Devil. But that's not the whole title. Let me give you an idea. Let, let me read you the title for you to have an idea of what he's going to be talking about in this book. Uh, so Grenoll's title is The Christian in Complete Armor, A Treatise of the Saints' War Against the Devil, wherein a discovery is made of that grand enemy of God and his people, in his policies, power, seat of empire, wickedness, and chief design he hath against the saints, and a magazine is opened from whence the Christian is furnished with spiritual arms for the battle, helped on with the, his armor, and taught the use of, this, of his weapon, together with happy issues of holy war. That's the title of the book. You get tired just reading the title, but it's a good book. And in their defense, table of contents weren't particularly uh, uh, in vogue at the time, so they had to describe the whole book in, on the table. But Grenoll is helpful in that he does an excellent job explaining Satan's wiles, Satan's strategies, Satan's strategies in attacking the Christian. And he, he, he describes Satan in three ways in verses 11 and 12. He says that he's... A great and powerful. No, he, and we can't forget that. Satan is great and powerful, but he's not God. And sometimes we forget that either. We don't live in the Star Wars universe. In the Star Wars universe, you have this force, and the good and the bad need to exist in order to balance themselves, and they're equally powerful, and the good and the bad are fighting with each other. This is not the Bible. That's just Eastern philosophy. Satan is not God. God is God, and we know that through Jesus Christ. Grenoll also says that Satan is wicked and destructive. He's not just trying to have a good time with you. He is after destroying you. And behind, and he stands behind the powers of this dark world. He's, that's all he does, to destroy. And he's extremely, according to Grenoll, sly and crafty. And Grenoll suggests six times... He says that Satan is always attacking you, but there are six times in your life that Satan likes to use to attack you more directly. He says that Satan loves to attack when a Christian is newly converted or immature. And he does that by bringing and keeping his sins before him. 
always keeping the Christian sins before him and say, how can you how can you say that you're a follower of God? Look at all these sins that you've committed instead of keeping your eyes upon Christ. Secondly, he says that Satan loves to attack the Christian when he's afflicted, when the Christian is afflicted, when things are not going well. The devil is quick to suggest that God has abandoned us or that we are not really God's children. Thirdly, he says that Satan loves to attack the Christian when he has achieved success. So when he's afflicted and when he's doing well. Those are the two times that Satan likes attack, uh, attacking the Christian. When, something, when he has accomplished something that is worthy of praise before God. And uh, we bring Peter into this the, the, to illustrate. Remember Peter in Matthew 16? Jesus asks who the people say that I am and so on. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says... You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and, and Christ praises him. You are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. And Peter, for the first time in his life, has not stuck his foot in his mouth. And he's pretty excited about that. And then, but then just a few verses later, in verse 27, how does Jesus address Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Because Peter, after having said that, said, But Jesus, you shouldn't die. Can you imagine the first pope trying to keep Jesus from the cross there? And, uh, and Jesus calls him Satan, or doing the work of Satan, which the pope hasn't stopped doing that since then. But uh, uh, here we have, then, the, the, the Christian has a measure of success. And Satan likes to use those times to attack him and to take his eyes off of Christ. The fourth thing that uh, Grinnell says is a time that, that uh, Satan likes attacking people, the Christians, when the Christian is idle. And I mean I-D-L-E, when he's not doing anything. He's not occupying himself. He's not occupying herself. Remember David in 1 Samuel 12, 2 Samuel 12? At least I make the same mistakes in every sermon. Uh, that's the same mistake I make in the first. Uh, but in 2 Samuel 12, the, the chapter starts by saying this. When kings, in the springtime, when kings went out to war, David was lying on the roof. Not doing what God had called him to do. Not doing what kings did in the spring. That is, to go to war. Uh, Gurnall says that it is this well-known proverb. I had never heard of this proverb. It's not a biblical proverb. It's a saying. It says this. It says that if the devil finds a man inactive, he will soon find some work for him to do. And that's true of Christianity as well. God is going to attack the Christian when he's idle. And then he says that the devil loves to attack the Christian when the Christian is isolated from others who share his faith. We're saved to live in community. And when we isolate ourselves from the faith, the devil likes to come. And that's why Ephesians is so much about life in community. And then, this is not as intuitive. He says that the devil loves to attack the Christian when the Christian is dying. When the Christian is dying. Because the time is short. If he's going to snatch that one from Christ, he has to work even harder now because he's about to die. And there's no hope for the devil to take him away from Christ. The Grenoble says, At the hour of death, when the saint is down and prostrate in his bodily strength, now this coward falls upon him. As they say of the natural serpent, that he never is seen at his length till dying, 
So this mystical servant never strains his wit and wiles more than when his time is short. The saint is even stepping into eternity, and now he treads upon his heels, which if he cannot trip up as to hinder his arrival in heaven, yet at least to bruise it, that he may go with more pain thither. And on the seventh, the seventh time, Grinaldi include this one, but the Ephesians does, the seventh time where Satan loves to attack the Christian, based on Ephesians 4.27, is when the Christian is angry. He loves to use those times to destroy relationships when the Christian is angry. But the thing is, brothers and sisters, Satan has one play on his playbook, and that is to lie about God and about us. That's the only play. Uh, remember how our Lord calls him in John 8? He is the father of lies, the chief liar himself. What he does, though, is that he dresses up those, that single play so that it's more difficult to recognize it. But that's only... No, he might move the tight end from one side of the line or the other. He might stack his receivers all in one side. He might have three running backs in the backfield, which should be a penalty, so he probably won't do that. But... He just dresses up the play, the single play he has, so that it's more difficult to recognize. Sometimes he attacks like a roaring lion. Right? He comes screaming, yelling lies about you and about Christ, as, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober and vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about, li- walks about like a roaring lion, seeking from he may devour. But how, what, what is he doing? He's just yelling lies about you and Christ. Sometimes attacks like a friend. Remember Genesis 3? He didn't come roaring at Eve. He came more like, hey, Eve, hey God, has God really said that? Now, as your friend, let me tell you something. If you ate of this fruit, you actually would be like God. What is he doing? Lying about God, lying about us. And sometimes Paul says in, in, in Corinthian letters that he comes as an angel of light. In the context of false preaching, he comes and preaches messages uh, uh, that are false. And the church goes deep, deep, love that. And they are deceived away from Christ. So we need to be careful. Now, how long do we fight this battle? Well, verse 13 tells us, and we're almost done. Verse 13 13 says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. So when do we fight this battle in the evil day? When is the evil day? It's the period between the resurrection of Christ and His return. His return. That's the evil day. So, so it's every day. We're fighting Him every day. During this time, we stand our ground. After the brilliant chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul just clearly proclaims the gospel in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he ends the chapter by saying this in verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, Immovable, again, the idea of standing, always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And that's what we do. We stand in this evil day. So, brothers and sisters, we are at war. Don't be fooled. We are at war. And the only way to fight this war is by being strong in the Lord. We do not live in a neutral world. This is the domain of Satan. And we need to be aware of that. And we are at our strongest when we are most empty of ourselves and filled with the Spirit of God, united to the conquering King, Jesus Christ, who has conquered his and our enemies. And we fight the war from that perspective. Satan is a defeated foe. He's fighting for his life. 
But you and I have been given life and life more abundantly. So we can fight with courage, knowing that we have a powerful enemy, but also knowing that we have a more powerful king who has gone before us and is waiting for us. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us the Lord Jesus Christ and in his cross and resurrection, he defeated his and our enemies. Enable us to live a life knowing that Christ is king and yet that we are still at war, that the end is declared as victory, but we're still fighting the battles of everyday life. Protect us against the attacks of Satan and give us the grace and the courage to fight him back. For asking Jesus' name, amen.